Paul says to the church this, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, as we approach your word, we, we recognize in utter dependence upon you that your spirit alone is our teacher. And so we pray for that anointing that makes us to know the Lord Jesus in his words, in his life, in his promise to make us the children of God. And so grant us, Lord, this day understanding. Grant us ears to hear. Grant us a heart that wants to obey and wants above all things to love God the very most and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We ask this for his sake now. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, God, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're moving today uh, beyond Paul's introduction to Romans, which we looked at last week, and we're moving into Paul's grand design. It's, it's really, um, truly, Paul's most important letter. And there's a reason why the church put this letter at the beginning of the New Testament, at the beginning of the letters. It's not first in order of, of temporal uh, or chronological priority. It's first in order of its importance. As we heard last week, what Calvin thought, uh, the book of Romans is the, is the Rosetta Stone for the whole Bible. And uh, Paul has a masterful argument to present, which is to showcase what God does for us through Christ. And to make that argument and to ground the Romans in the gospel, Paul is relentless in the opening of his letter. He is relentless in his treatment of human sin. I mean, Paul is merciless in these first three chapters. He paints such a portrait of the extent and the catastrophe of human sin that if you read Romans honestly, and if you face squarely what Paul is saying here, you can't help be disturbed by what he says. It's kind of like looking at Michelangelo's fresco, The Last Judgment, painted on the Sistine Chapel. If you really look at that painting, and as you ponder the expressions of the damned, you can't help be troubled by what you see. And if there's anything that separates 21st century Christianity from 1st century Christianity, it's these first three chapters of Romans, the sheer relentlessness with which the Apostle Paul drives home the reality and the misery of human sinfulness. That message is rarely to be found in the modern church. We love Romans 8, and rightly so. We love the glory of Romans 8, the freedom of Romans 8. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, not so much. Because in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul depicts humanity as deplorable. 
when C.H. Spurgeon was 27 years old. 27. He's preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, September 1st, 1861. And Spurgeon said this to his congregation. He said, it's a great wonder that there is one Christian upon the face of the earth. Some religions teach doctrines palatable to human nature, but the doctrines of Christ are the most unpalatable that could have been suggested. Have you felt that before? That the doctrines of Christ are unpalatable. Our text today on the surface doesn't seem to be unpalatable. In fact, on the surface, our text today seems to be quite chipper. It seems to be quite cheerful. And sure enough, in many ways, it is. The gospel, Paul says, is God's power. It's God's power to save you. The gospel is revealing something. It's revealing righteousness as the gospel goes out, God's righteousness. And these are encouraging things. But our text today, it stands on the very precipice of Paul's scorching indictment against human sin. And it begins with this puzzling admission today that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel that he preaches. When we read that, it should puzzle us. It should be puzzling to us insofar as we ask ourselves, we stop and we say, why does Paul feel compelled to say this? What is it about his audience in Rome that compels Paul to distinguish himself as one who is not ashamed? The idea of being ashamed of the gospel, of course, isn't foreign to the New Testament. Jesus predicts this, doesn't he? If any of you are ashamed of me, and if you're ashamed of my words, of that person the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. And even Timothy, a man of such noble quality as Paul's protege, Timothy, Paul has to say to Timothy to remind the young pastor, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And so even some of the best and the brightest struggle with this. And I don't doubt that even Paul himself struggled with this temptation, even though he clearly surmounts it. But why be ashamed of Jesus? Why be ashamed of the gospel? I mean, it's a wonderful story. And we're not generally ashamed of wonderful stories. We see a great movie. We read a great book. We want to share it. Oh, I saw a great movie last night. You need to hear about that. But with the gospel, it seems different. And it's so easy to be ashamed of this story, isn't it? I'm not moving. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, he says this. He says, if you don't understand and wrestle with this, why it's so easy to be ashamed of the gospel, then you haven't really begun to understand the gospel. But when we understand the gospel, and we understand why the world would ridicule us because of the gospel, then we realize why we might be tempted to be ashamed. None of us likes being ridiculed. None of us likes being grouped with the people who are considered 
preposterous. We don't. By nature, we like to be well thought of. We like to be esteemed. We like to be regarded. None of us enjoys being thought of as the fool. Even when we're in public and we do something accidental by, by a trip, a fall, we, we spill our coffee. We mumble some words in a way that we shouldn't. Even then, in the company of gracious people, we recoil at the thought of not being well thought of by our peers. And we all have this natural inclination to want to be well thought of. And now we hold forth this gospel to the world. And that gospel says that Jesus Christ, he is the source of life. He is the bread that's come down from heaven to feed humanity. He is the door to immortality. He is the path to perfect happiness. He is the cure to all brokenness and sin. He is the great sacrifice to expunge all of our guilt and our shame. He is the light to banish all darkness. He is the champion to defeat all of our enemies, sin and the devil and hell itself. He is the one who will defeat our ancient adversary, the devil. Christ is our conquering Lord and he's our Savior. He is the light of lights. He's immortality itself. But then the gospel says something else, doesn't it? When the gospel says that Christ is the answer, it also says that humanity is not. And the gospel cuts right across all of those pretensions of humanity to have some strength, to have some nobility, to have some wisdom, some philosophy, some adamantine resolve to put some mark on its own salvation. I was out for a walk recently with my son and uh, we turned a corner uh, and we came upon a house that was having its roof redone. And they were taking the old shakes off, uh, stripping all the shakes and all, the, all the, uh, the tar paper, and both workers were untethered. No harnesses, no ropes, and I watched one guy walking along the ridge beam of the roof, his arms unwieldily filled with tar paper and shingles and he wobbled as he walked along the ridge of that roof and he came to the edge and very precariously with this unwieldy load he just he threw them off into this bin below and he walked back as he uh, to his previous spot wobbling again and it was such a striking picture to me you know and so many around us in this world, they think just like that. They're walking the ridge, re the ridge beam of life. And yes, it's a dangerous place. And yes, it's precarious. And sometimes I wobble. And sometimes I get scared. But I think that I can do it. I think that I can wobble this ridge of life and get through okay. But you see, the gospel comes. The gospel comes and it changes the whole metaphor. It doesn't say you need a tether. It doesn't say you need a rope. The gospel comes and says you can not only walk the ridge, but you've already fallen. You've plummeted so far and you are so badly broken that there's no getting up at all. You are frightfully, frightfully disfigured. You are smashed in pieces and you cannot lift a limb. There's nothing that you can do. 
And the gospel of Jesus Christ pronounces to humanity, there is nothing that you can do. Now, I want you to imagine with me Rome. It's the eternal city. It's the imperial city. It's the city of glory, the center of culture and philosophy and knowledge and science. And you can imagine how hard it was to say to those Romans, there's nothing you can do. Your philosophy can't save you. Your morality can't save you. Your aqueducts and your roads, your politicians and your Caesars, your architecture and your academies, your estates, your legacies, none of it can save you. And the one thing the natural man hates to hear, it's this very message, there is nothing you can do. Your strength is weakness. Your wisdom is folly. Your philosophy, as beautiful as it is, as moral as it can make you, it's folly. Where's the one that's wise? Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And when we preach that gospel... When we dare to tell people that the only man that God accepts in the whole universe, the only upright man, the only moral man, the only truly living man is the man Jesus Christ. When we dare to speak that kind of gospel, then we will quickly know what it means to be held in derision and to be held in contempt by the world. And then we'll know the temptation and how easy it is to want to avoid dislike, to avoid the hostility, and just to blend in, to say nice things, to speak only encouraging things, to say peace, peace, even when there's no peace. The gospel, however, says hard things. And hard things make people hate you. But now look at Paul. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He's willing to be hated by all men, as Jesus said we would be, for the sake of the gospel. And he's willing with Spurgeon to proclaim the most unpalatable doctrines. Because he knows that it's these doctrines that are the power of God unto salvation. Not just the good news that Jesus is the shepherd and Jesus is the lamb, but also the bad news that humanity is so perversely warped and twisted and bent by wickedness that Paul in chapter 3, he resorts to this word worthless. Talk about unpalatable. I mean, that is unacceptable language in our world's eyes. Protagoras, the ancient Greek, says man is the measure of all things. And Paul says man is worthless. No one does good, Paul says. 
Not even one. Search the mountains. Search the fields. Search the valleys. Search the towns and search the cities. There is not one. Humanity in its totality, Paul says, has become worthless. And Paul is not ashamed of a gospel that speaks like this. And Paul is not unwilling to be despised because of a gospel that speaks like this. In fact, it's the very opposite. Paul, he leaps before the ark, as it were. He dances with all of his might before the gospel, and he says to the Romans, do you think I'm undignified? I will make myself even more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, and I will make myself merry before the Lord and his gospel. Because I know that what makes you so angry, that very thing is God's power unto salvation. The gospel, my brothers and sisters, it proclaims this, that what God judged to be worthless, what he knew to be worthless, what he had every right to destroy, because it was utterly worthless. Those very worthless ones he calls and he gathers to be invited into the very worth of his own son. You see, the prodigal had spent everything. The prodigal had spent years running around in this wide path of destruction. The prodigal had ruined himself. The prodigal had brought the worst kind of shame upon his father. The prodigal had become worthless. And still, the father gives the prodigal everything. And when a man or a woman is made to see how vile and how foul and how worthless they are, that they have ruined everything and still the Lord loves them with an everlasting love and the Lord moves heaven and earth to save them by his own agony by his own suffering by his own merit his own works his own faithfulness his own righteousness when by grace we understand these two things that I am a great sinner and God is a great savior then that gospel, it opens us to the whole view of the righteousness of God. In that gospel, the righteousness is being revealed. And not just forensic righteousness. Not just that you are made legally righteous to stand before God. But in the gospel, Paul says this. He says the whole project of God's righteousness It's being revealed to us. He's making all things holy, Paul says. He's making the whole universe well. God is bringing his shalom. He's bringing his peace to all. And Paul here, he's referring to Isaiah 51 where God says, I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And faith receiving this gospel and beholding this God sees 
the great project of God to make all things well. From faith to faith, Paul writes. From faith to faith. And it's precisely faith, as Calvin says, because faith is that empty hand. It's an open hand. And it's stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Nothing to offer and everything to receive. That's the gospel. And you need both halves to have a gospel. And you see, we can get so very busy in our lives, and we can get so very busy in the church trying to sanitize the gospel so that it won't offend. But a sanitized gospel, a gospel of one half, it is not the power of God into salvation. It's the offense of the gospel that we can do nothing. It's the offense of the gospel that we have nothing to offer. It's the offense that does the work, that breaks the heart and leads people to repentance. And it gives them the power to behold the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. Behold, what love is this? That we, worthless ones, should be called the children and the sons of the living God. So brothers and sisters, as we walk these next few chapters and the next few weeks, and as we walk in Spurgeon's words through unpalatable doctrines, unpalatable teaching, may we allow the Spirit to do His work by grace and to help us all understand how far we've fallen and how precious is His grace and how abounding it is to each of us today and in days to come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.